Welcome to Act and Unwind, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, Eric Cohn. I want to thank you for listening and ask that if you're listening to us on our website, that you navigate right now to the show notes for this episode, where you will find a link to subscribe directly to Act and Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else where you listen to find podcasts. And if you like this program, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts so as to help more people find our show. This week, I'm joined by Dan Huger, Acton's librarian and a research associate, and Dylan Palman, executive editor of the Journal of Markets and Morality and a research fellow here at Acton. And this week, we're thrilled to be joined by a very special guest, the author of There's No Free Lunch, 250 Economic Truths, the founder, managing partner, and chief investment officer of the Bonson Group, David Bonson. Today, on this all-economics-focused edition of Acton Unwind, we'll take stock of the uh, state of the economy, what two quarters of negative GDP growth mean, how bad inflation is, what the Fed is doing, and a kind of potpourri grab bag of more econ-related topics. So I would like to start by asking you, David, um, just what is a recession and are we in one? All right. Well, this has become a pretty um, politically loaded question. And yet, I think for those of us that are focused on economic vocabulary, the challenge is that there isn't a specific definition that is either governmental or regulatory or even academic. Now, I do believe that there has been a traditional understanding which may very well be different than a definition. Um, But that traditional understanding has been essentially two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth. So I think you have two challenges here. First is whether or not that traditional understanding is equivalent to a hard definition. And second is whether or not the thing you're measuring has a great definition, which is GDP growth. And, and there's some controversy around even that object of the study, the GDP, the gross domestic product itself. So the, the long answer to your short question is that right now, people's definition of recession certainly seems to be hinging upon some sort of a political aspiration or, or leaning. But I do think it's entirely fair to say that two things are true at once. We're in the traditional understanding of recession, which is technically two quarters of negative GDP growth. And number two, there are a lot of parts of the economy right now that do not meet recessionary criteria. Yeah, separating out that the the two parts of the definition, the political one and the economic one, although, uh, David, because I heard you interviewed on Jonah Goldberg's podcast, I thought you made an interesting point that I wasn't really aware of, that essentially the definition of a recession is farmed out to um, the, was it the Bureau of Economic Analysis? Uh, um, the NBER, the National Bureau of Economic Research. National Bureau of Economic Research. And more or less, the definition is it's a recession when we say it's a recession. I mean, there's, there you know, we've had the shorthand of the two quarters of negative growth, but they look at a whole lot of other factors. What else would they, what else would they look at? What else should we be looking at right now? And what are those elements of the economy uh, that you just referenced that are not looking recessionary? Right. Well, here's, let me make a point. The MBR generally does not label something a recession till much later, but that's generally not a problem 
because much like a weatherman telling you after the weekend of Hurricane Harvey that we had a hurricane, generally no one needs you, needs a weatherman to tell them when they're in a hurricane, right? So they may not have technically labeled 2008 a recession until 2009, but when, then there, when there were quite literally millions and in fact tens of millions of layoffs, um, it was so obvious that people didn't need it. The problem right now is you have 3.6% unemployment and you have millions of job openings that employers are trying to fill, not desperate employees looking for jobs. And so that feels anti-recessionary. And yet GDP growth is a weighted formula for uh, inventories, consumer activity, business production, and trade. And we had a huge increase to GDP from imports, exports. China exported less to us than normal because of their lockdown. And we exported more than ever because of obvious energy factors last quarter. And yet the consumer was down in its activity relative to last year, where the, the, the reopening from COVID was creating a very high base effect. But inventories are really what caused this negative GDP print. And so the best thing I can say is that that's the way we've always measured it. So now is not the right time for anyone to be critiquing the definition of GDP. But I will say, because I've been saying it for 15 years, so I don't feel like I'm Johnny-come-lately trying to make a political point on Fox News. Business investment is what I care about because I'm focused on productivity. I don't believe you go into recession when businesses are investing a lot into capital expenditures and things that are going to increase output. And business investment was just flat for the quarter. It wasn't negative, but it wasn't positive enough to offset the effect of declining inventories. So Leo Tolstoy famously said that <clears throat> all happy families are the same and that unhappy families are all unhappy in their own particular ways. And I think this is, this is true about economies and that functional economies where there's economic growth, those are all essentially the same. Dysfunctional economies are all very different um, for a lot of those factors. Um, recession tends to politically – be interpreted as a negative thing. This is uh, something you want. You want this label on your political opponents if you can if you can tag them with some sort of responsibility for it. Now, you know, very famously, George H. W. Bush. Many people attribute you know the loss of the presidential election uh, in uh, 1992 to a recession that later, one year later, when the actual data comes out, at the time of the election, we were already out of the recession. So there's, there's certainly political stakes here. And I think that obscures a lot of the conversation and a lot of the details that David is sort of rightfully drawing our, uh, our attention to. I agree with that. I love that quote from Tolstoy. Um, and yeah, there's more than one ways to make a mess, right? Um, there's only one way to clean everything up and make it look good. Um, so on a variety of metrics, as I already mentioned, uh, we could be doing a lot better. Um, I I guess I'm like further skeptical. I don't know. I, I don't have a, much of a say in, you know, what label do we give this? Um, but, you know, productivity measures 
the labor shortages are at least pretty strong evidence that productivity could be a lot better, right? Companies want to hire, they want to be producing more, and they can't. Um, we still have supply chain issues, which are which is slowing down productivity. Um, so all these sorts of things are additional factors. And then we have, of course, inflation on top of all of this. Um, so we're we're in the midst of a mess, and I guess I would be curious uh, for some input in terms of not simply where are we now, but what is our trajectory? You know, where is this mess headed? Is it does it look like it's getting cleaned up? Um, I don't quite see that myself. Uh, or does it look like it could potentially get worse? I'll make a point real quick about the the politics since we've all referenced it. <clears throat> it was a good analogy that I heard on on the Dispatch podcast that uh, there's this odd Streisand effect thing going on with the way that the Biden White House has been talking about this in coming out so quickly ahead of actually getting the GDP numbers and saying, actually, that whole shorthand thing of uh, two quarters of negative growth being a recession, it's not uh, that's not actually the definition of a recession, which, again, as, as David has elucidated, is, you know, there, there's truth in all of that. But there's the doth protest too much problem. Like, one, that was the first indication to me that's like, yeah, they already know we're going to have uh, a, you know, another quarter of negative GDP growth, which is why they're talking about all of this. But it put the word recession in so many more people's mouths than I wonder if we would have gotten if we just would have had the news come out and it be handled the way that it would typically be handled. Um, and n- not that it's, you know, the two de- quarters of negative growth and that being the shorthand for recession is ho-hum to anybody. But now we're having this whole debate over what actually is a recession that gets us all talking about the idea of recession more than I think we would have been if the numbers had just come out and it would have been just like a regular economic news cycle. Well, somebody sounds like a first-rate marketing and political consulting expert. (laughs) (laughs) Because, Eric, the idea that the word recession is what the Democrats want to be uh, uttered right now is preposterous. And I agree with you 100%. The story became the kind of cover-up, if you will, as opposed to the event itself. And this is why recession, very similar to my weather analogy, it does not need controversial talk or debate. And that's what really the White House preemptive efforts helped to spark. Um, It's a crude analogy, but I closed an article I wrote for World Opinions on Friday with a parallel to the famous line from Justice Potter about pornography that he he knows he can't define it. He knows it when he sees it. And and I think that this is the fact for American people with recession. Um, There's another old joke, by the way, about a, a recession is when a neighbor loses his job and a depression is when you lose your job, something to that effect. We don't have a lot of joblessness right now, but we know of the pricing pressures, particularly in energy and, and food. Um, and, we, and we know that there is a slowdown in activity, much of which is a slowdown relative to what took place in the COVID reopening. Um, I would just simply say to Dylan's point that the skepticism about where we go in the economy from here is entirely legitimate. And I frankly think will very likely play out. It is just simply predictive, though. It is not descriptive. When we describe what just happened as a lagging indicator, 
were limited to the data from Q2. And the data from Q2 is everything that the current environment does not like in terms of cable news and Twitter. It was nuanced. It was split. There was very positive labor data and very negative or trending negative consumer data, confidence data, sentiment. Where we go from here, I'm entirely open to various predictions. Um, my own would be that if we do go into a recession of, of more known and, and clear magnitude, that it will prove to be a shallow one um, for a number of reasons in credit and banking. But nevertheless, where we are now, um, I think most people can at least agree on this. If the political hats were of leadership were being worn by Republicans, it would be labeled a recession in the mainstream media. And the environment we're in does not speak to a great forward-looking long-term outlook. If inventories had not been contracted last quarter and we technically were up 0.3%, would anyone be happy with that? See, that's the thing. It's so bothersome to me is we got 1.6% real GDP growth for 15 years. So that's not a recession. There was no recession from the financial crisis to COVID. But we got half of real GDP growth for a generation. And I think that's a far worse story than a two-quarter blip of recession. It just lacks the political sensationalism. I remember being at a, a seminar years ago. Um, I think it was actually, I think it was a George W. Bush who had a book out on like the 3% solution, talking about the idea of growing at 3%. And um, the, this is the idea that we be, should be pursuing. And yet we've had this, as, as David pointed out, um, we've had growth, but it has been some kind of like you know, low 1.6%, uh, I believe that you said. What are the factors that contributed to us seeing it, that consistency, but consistently lower than we would probably like it to be, uh, what we would want to see from the economy? Uh, debt. That's it. One word. Debt, debt, debt. Excessive indebtedness is a um, uh, pulls future growth down. We, we spent money to pull into the present future growth, which means we're stuck with compressed growth into the future. And even if the household sector that held back economic growth in the mid-2000s, even though there was a lot of delevering there, we replaced it on the balance sheet of um, the federal government. And so the excessive indebtedness in any sovereign country represents the single a uh, secular factor in downward pressure on growth. In this way, it's, it's very similar to what Japan has experienced for a longer duration of time, similarly linked to indebtedness. You also can see persistently low growth um, due to sort of uh, an overactive regulatory state and state apparatus. This is what um, – after uh, after the Nehru presidency until uh, Prime Minister Rao in India, they experienced persistent low growth, which actually got nicknamed the Hindu rate of growth. And people were frustrated. They were looking for sort of cultural accounts of this. It turns out that when Prime Minister Rao actually liberalized the economy, 
that anomaly disappeared. And India has since seen periods of much higher growth. So I think David is absolutely right in his assessment of what has caused this persistent low growth in the United States. But that persistent low growth can have a number of causes depending on sort of institutional arrangements in different contexts. I'm curious about, sorry, I just have a lot of questions instead of <laughs> important contributions, but I'm curious a little bit about, um, so, you know, there's, of course, this is being politicized and everybody wants to to label this as we're in a recession and it's Biden's fault or whatever. I guess half the people want to want to do that. The other half don't. But uh, to what degree does perception matter? So um, I know in the 80s, for example, we had uh, a successful fight against inflation, but it took year after year after year of reducing the money supply until people noticed, right? Like there there was a subjective side to all of it. Um, to what degree will, you know, like uh, in the horror movie with like, was it Candyman where you say the name three times? You know, if you say recession three times in the mirror, do we just get a recession? Is, you know, is there, is this something that um, the popular perception is actually going to change consumer behavior, um, company behavior, you know, anything like that? Or is it just a matter of, well, you know, all we got to do is, is tweak uh, a few different metrics and we'll, we'll be out of this? I, I think that there's a very philosophical um, contingency in the way one answers your question. I think it's a really astute question. And I, I think you're very right empirically that this is a popular belief or question or inkling um, that there becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, either in inflation or in recession talk, that confidence lead becomes, you know, its own predictive reality. I myself, as a supply sider and one who takes a more anthropological view of economics, do not believe that humans act merely off of kind of um, water cooler talk. I think that uh, the meeting of human needs is much more logical and rational. And if we start with a kind of easy example of, of delight, it's very hard for me to believe someone goes out, has the money, and is prepared to have a really nice steak dinner, and on the way there stops and says, I don't know, I keep hearing people talk about recession. I don't think I'm going to eat the steak tonight. I, I don't think humans behave that way, and I particularly don't think American consumers behave that way. But what I do think is susceptible is the production side, which ultimately drives output. If a business believes that recession is coming, they tend to pull back on productive investment with capital, with risk, with R&D, um, hirings, et cetera. This is why unemployment goes up in a recession generally early, because employers seeing clouds coming, stop hiring, and then start firing. And when they don't do that, it generally means they probably don't see clouds coming. And so I don't want to discount the possibility that there are pockets of people responding to the kind of ambient mood economically, but I've, I, I have never been fully convinced that humans are um, ultimately that easily lulled. I think that uh, the production side is far more indicative of where we will go than a kind of consumer sentiment, which, which effectively is backward looking. I think when people in the University of Michigan Consumer Confidence Index each month 
are being asked what they think. It has far more to do about what just got done happening the prior month or quarter than it does the next month or quarter. I think David is right about the the kind of calculations individuals make that, you know, like he said, you're not going to turn around if you're going out for a steak dinner because of the the tenor of the, the conversation or the capital N narrative that is going on right now. But allow me to make, if you will, another uh, marketing or political communications point that I think is what's contributing to a lot of the frustration out there amongst people is the nature first of this, uh, as we've been talking about here, the what is and is not a recession. I doubt there are very many people who could tell you that two quarters of negative GDP growth is the shorthand for a recession. But I think there are a lot of people out there who get the sense that you know the economy is still not in a very good place right now. Uh, and I think what drives them crazy is that the reaction from the White House is to say, who are you going to believe, me or your lying eyes? It's, it's Obi-Wan Kenobi. It's, this is not the uh, economy you're looking for, economic news you're looking for. Or it's uh, Leslie Nielsen from The Naked Gun standing in front of the exploding fireworks factory saying, nothing to see here. I think that drives people nuts. And, and to have segue this into another part of this conversation, I think another great example of that kind of thing that drives people nuts is what have we been hearing a whole heck of a lot about over the last you know six, seven, eight months? Inflation. What do we learn last week that now there is this large piece of legislation that I, I do pure analysis, political analysis here that I still think uh, big question if this actually does end up getting enacted. But it is four hundred and thirty three billion dollars in additional spending on a whole lot of things that are just slimmed down from the build back better agenda bill. But now it's called the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. So that changes things entirely. I think there are some instinctual things people have that you think they get the idea that, you know, probably the government spending a whole lot more money we have right now isn't a great idea. Um, and then just slapping a label of the Inflation Reduction Act on it, I think, is one of those similar things that just frustrates people about how unserious the political actors who are supposed to be addressing these problems seem to be at this moment. And if passed, it will increase inflation. I mean, they're they're raising corporate tax as part of this. I mean, that's an expense which has to be made up for either by reducing hours or raising prices. And, you know, uh, you, we already have uh, 9% inflation as of last month's numbers and about 5% wage growth, which would be great. But with 9% inflation, that is a pay cut. People are, you know, you, we have these labor shortages People go out to eat and suddenly it takes an hour to get their food. Why? Because they don't have the wait staff or they don't have the kitchen staff. You know, people, that's the what your eyes see side of it. Um, and it's because, com you know, businesses can't attract the labor. Um, so we have this labor shortage. Um, and, yeah, that's not the technical definition of a recession, but it's something that people see every day and something that is not going to get any better uh, with this kind of a proposal. David, if I could have you weigh in real quick on – feel free to say anything you want about the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. But we've talked about inflation before on this podcast and on Acton Line when I talked to you last uh, November. 
and I believe we were already discussing the uh, concern about inflation. And uh, you made a good point about the intersection again of this in politics of the uh, certain sectors of the political right who have been claiming for a long time that all this additional government spending is going to create inflation. And, and your take on that is um, far more nuanced. So I wonder if you could break that uh, the whole nexus between increased government spending and the resulting uh, or perhaps not resulting, but the also concurrent inflation that we have going on. Yeah, I hope you'll uh, allow me to plug my weekly dividendcafe.com yes. because I just got done writing a two-part uh, piece on, on this subject, and, and just this last Friday, the kind of second-part conclusion of it was, to me, one of the most important pieces I've ever written. Um, it, is, it is completely mythological that this act would be an Inflation Reduction Act, and yet I believe they know what I know, which is that the rate of inflation is about to come down and come down quite significantly. And therefore, they plan to put one of the great post hoc fallacies over on the American people that we've ever seen. Uh, by the way, if the inflation rate drops from the CPI print of July of 9% to something around 4 or 5, it will be double what the Fed's own target rate is, and yet it will be half of what it is now. So we can debate where we're headed. But um, I can give 15 anecdotal reasons why I think the inflation rate's about to come down and that a lot of Republicans who made this political have walked into a trap. Um, I don't want to give the government the power. I don't want to uh, concede that the government has the ability to create inflation any more than I want to believe. Uh, I want to concede that they can take it away. And that will be the lesson that the public takes away from this, that the government has magical hands on something that they don't have. When we can be as critical as we should be of both monetary and fiscal policy by focusing on instability, which is what they've really created. But Dylan made the point I would make by saying we have this 9% inflation, and then his example was labor shortage at restaurants. But a labor shortage is not caused by too much money supply, and a labor shortage is certainly not caused by low interest rates. What we've had is a supply-side deficiency caused by pandemic policies that were abysmally um, inadequate, uh, reopenings that were uh, just mysteriously ill-prepared for, and um, a series of policy errors. Now, the helicopter money of Biden's latest spending bill most certainly didn't help, but we're not out of the velocity trap we've been in for 20 years. Velocity is at ridiculously low levels. Money supply growth has contracted significantly over the last nine months. And yet the supply side is why we have such high energy prices. Demand, by the way, is actually down a tiny bit from 2019. So the Fed can raise rates to 5% tomorrow. They're not going to cause for the fact that we don't have enough rigs producing oil and gas. And so to me, what the, again, like the recession talk, two things can be, and in this case are true at once. And I don't mean this to be overly complex. I agree with you, Eric. It's somewhat nuanced, but I don't want it to be nuanced. I want it to be our understanding of economics, that the government doesn't have as much ability as we want to think they do. And anytime we say they created this inflation, we've been overspending for 20 years. 
We've been um, running up excessive debt for 20 years. We've had an unbelievably reckless monetary policy for 15 years. And we just got inflation the last 10 months. We have monetary instability that exacerbates boom-bust cycles because we've empowered Congress and empowered the Fed with way too much. But ultimately, the downward pressure on growth is deflationary. Our abysmal demographics and disinterest in having families is deflationary. And these are the things I think that are going to be bigger secular factors, even though right now in summer of 22, households are obviously still fighting higher prices at the grocery store. So we're looking at a sort of Japanification, um, if, if you will. Um, that's oh, I wish it weren't so, but I think, uh, but I think that's that's true. One one of the interesting things in this conversation that I've noticed is, you know, John Maynard Keynes in his general theory put a great emphasis on what he called animal spirits, and these are the attitudes that people have. And what I've heard the consensus around the table seems to be is that doesn't drive consumer behavior that may drive isolated decisions in boardrooms. And it may drive naming conventions of legislations among politicians. But Eric, as you pointed out, a lot of what is in this bill is simply things that appeared in prior bills that failed. And this sort of branding has been reinterpreted. Is there a way in which all of this talk about the talk takes us away from actually investigating what's going on um, in the economies, in boardrooms, in households um, around the nation? And is this a sort of counterproductive political strategy um, for Republicans to focus on these issues of language? I I agree. And I think I think, you know, David's assessment that, you know, that Republicans or conservatives or whoever is criticizing the current administration have kind of walked into a political trap. Um, there, there definitely seems to be some evidence for that. I would still, I think, be happy if inflation fell to 5% <laughs> next, uh, next uh, numbers that we get. Um, but yeah, the, the idea that we can just attribute this to, oh, we passed an act of spending the right way and that affected the economy. You know, the, the kind of alchemy, the um, I don't know, Wizard of Oz sort of, you know, don't look at the man behind the curtain. Uh, maybe it's the reverse because there is no man behind the curtain. But um, the idea that the government is somehow doing this when what an economy really needs is production. Um, that's how you get jobs. That's how you get growth. That's how you get opportunity. Um, and we need to look at, well, what is it that, you know, why do we still have Supply chain issues, when the pandemic is basically endemic now, right? We, we've learned to live with it. We've lifted all restrictions for the most part. And yet people are still like, well, you know, we got to wait another month for that or whatever the case may be. Why, why aren't we drilling more when Russia is at war with Ukraine? Um, why aren't we tapping into our oil reserves? Why are we instead, you know, going to the Saudis or whoever else? Um, it It's kind of crazy and it's this weird sort of intentional or not uh, might just be uh, you know a happy result of incompetence uh, sort of misdirection uh, for the public and uh, perhaps even for people who should know better that 
This isn't about whose side is winning. Um, it's about uh, a real science of economics um, and the real factors of production and what makes for the wealth of nations. And in those factors, uh, our family is a little dysfunctional to harken back to Tolstoy again. I want to uh, compound David's point about the relationship that would be uh, implanted by uh, the passage of this act. And then if David is is correct, and I think we all hope that he is, that inflation is about to come down, the, the idea that would be communicated through that, that government does have this power to take inflation away. Uh, there's another Coral of one that I, I think is out there as well, which is I, I saw this uh, analysis not too long ago about the number of the number of times that we have seen uh, a recession when a Republican has been president versus when a Democrat has been president, and more or less the point is, and, and this is the part that drives me absolutely crazy, right? Is that the, what the takeaway that political actors would want you to have from this is: if you want economic growth, elect Democrats, and if you want economic recessions, elect Republicans. When like we all know that it's more complicated than that, I think a lot of people know it's more complicated than that. But from that very, you know, I, I saw something also, you know, similar. The friend shared. You know, again, bad Facebook meme type stuff. But nonetheless, this is what does get circulated and people talk about where he went and took a whole bunch of different economic charts and uh, uh, put where Reagan was elected. And then it's like, then debt explodes. And then all these other things happen. And it draws these direct uh, tries to draw these direct lines between just the simple election of a president from a particular political party and economic outcomes. It is always driven me crazy the extent to which we give uh, much in the same way that in sports coaches get way too much credit for team success and way too much blame for team failures. Uh, presidents get way too much credit for economic success and way too much blame for economic failure. But it is not in any individual president or political party's interest to try to blow up this impression because, you know, if, if it may hit you uh, on – you may get the downside of it this time. You may get the upside of it next time and you want all the glory when it comes around to you. Well, you're exactly right and the only uh, resolution to this uh, problem um, is not going to happen, which is for one side to stop doing it, and then that would enable the other side to stop doing it. It is the opposite. We're doubling down on the notion of an imperial economic presidency, the post hoc fallacy that goes in to that analysis. Now, generally, when people do it with the stock market, I'll point out that you actually have higher correlations with like what National League pitchers did certain things in the stock market than even presidents and and various aspects of what Mercury was doing in the galaxy and so forth. So, you know, the, the people have to be careful about correlation causation. Um, the other inconvenient truth on recession and stock market correlation to Republican-Democrat divide is people uh, treat Nixon and Ford as if they were Republicans, which I take deep offense to. But... Um, <laughs> Uh, on, on the economic side. But you know what? I think that uh, this the, the issue we face right now about the power we assume government has largely comes from the even bigger theological problem of the people wanting a king. And I have decided more recently 
that this is our problem with the Fed right now as well. For a long time, we've wanted both Congress and the presidency to solve things in our lives that I think they were ill-equipped to do, and it represented a hollowing out of civil society. But I think right now, the notion that the Fed is there to bail out Wall Street is not entirely true. I think they coddle risk assets. I think that sentiment notion that we talked about earlier, the self-fulfilling prophecy fear and Keynesian uh, animal spirit thinking, I think that's consistent with Greenspan's old notion of wealth effect, that if people feel like their stock portfolios and their houses are worth more, that they spend more and are generally better economic actors as consumers. And I think all of it comes from the same fallacious thinking. But I noticed through COVID that there was a main street assumption that the Fed was going to do something. And I think there's a confusion on Main Street between what exactly is the Fed and what exactly is government and treasury. And and those lines have gotten blurred to our own demise. But I guess what I'm getting at is um, this is sort of this crisis of responsibility I've been writing about for a while. And I do want to point out the term Japanification is one I think I've been using for 10 years now, but I have never charged a royalty for it. And I don't even remember who I stole it from. So um, <laughs> it, it's a great word and it absolutely describes what we're dealing with. But, but you know what the tragedy is that I can share with you three? Japanification was something I feared America going into economically from excessive indebtedness, but at least we had household formation offsetting it. We had a a demography that was superior, giving us at least a slower form of Japanification. And we seem hell-bent on surrendering that advantage as well. We've seen also compounding this is rates of immigration have fallen to very, very low levels under under President Trump, but continuing throughout the Biden administration. So there are those, you know, one one sort of solution that I might suggest to the to the sort of political class is that the productive forces in society are all there. And there are ways in which you can get out of the way and that, um, you know, there can be, you know, this isn't something that you turn off and on. You know, the economy is made up of the decisions of millions of people. And the more you unleash those people's creative potential and those people's, uh, you know, opportunities to exchange and better themselves, their own lives and their communities, then maybe you can get the productivity um, if you if if you just allow it to happen. But the trends are not there, and there there are huge obstacles. And I think I think David points to the very leading obstacle that is just you know productivity comes from people, and when you have less people, that's going to show up in the economy. I think you're also getting a similar problem, especially from our 
national conservative friends that are treating the demography problem that we've been talking about the same way that a lot of people are or would be talking about the inflation problem if, again, as if inflation comes down after this act is passed to assume that government has the power to solve this problem. And I, I know it's an incredibly frustrating thing for a lot of people um, to you know want – uh, to, to be able to just not hear that, you know, oh, the, well, if we just pass certain legislation and make policy changes, we can incentivize more people to have children and to form families at earlier ages. And you know, perhaps you can dabble on the margins and change some things. But there are, again, this is a failure of an understanding of human anthropology that is leading us to this uh, erroneous belief that government can solve these problems. I mean, I, I, I want to evoke again what I've, I've continually said when we've discussed the incidents of mass shootings on this show, which is that, you know, public policy can't heal broken souls. I think this is a, a similar problem that we have this we want to have this belief that it's that easy to solve it, that if we just pass an act with the, you know, the, the Family Formation Act of 2022, that we're going to turn this demography downturn around. But it's just far more complicated than that. And I get that that's unsatisfying to people, that it's like these things are hard and they're nuanced and they're based on a whole lot of different factors and things that take a whole lot of cultural effort to be able to change. And that just sounds like hard work. It'd be so much easier to just pass a bill. And that's where we are with this debate, sadly. Yeah, I want to um, add to that on the, the theological point uh, that, that David brought up, that there really is a, a problem. Um, and this was pointed out, you know, even in uh, the early 20th century by some in Russia, some critics of the, the Bolsheviks and uh, who, of course, uh, Ended up exiling them promptly as soon as they came to power. Um, but this idea that there is a fallacious idea, if you don't have faith, right, if you don't have God, uh, suddenly you don't have providence. And so you look to you a king, right, or the government or whatever. You need to an anthropological providence, which means that you need to have this government apparatus involved in everything, um, which suggests that... To some degree, I don't think it's this simple, um, but to some degree, what is needed is more faith. Like people need to start with the presumption, as did, frankly, some of the founding fathers, uh, faith in, uh, you know, the author of nature, uh, faith in providence, even in a deistic sense, right? Some of them uh, were not traditional Christians by, by what we might expect, um, but they believed in providence. They believed that there was a governor of the universe, uh, who was supreme over any human government. Um, and if you have that starting assumption, there is just so much more that you can you can tolerate the government not being involved in, the state not being involved in, or for that matter, you know, state and federal compared to local. You can just say, maybe we can take care of this ourselves. Maybe we get together, we pray, we p raise a barn, <laughs> you know, whatever whatever the you know the the activity uh, may be. Uh, but we have some faith um, that things can get better. Um, people, you know, why aren't people going to work? Uh, they don't think it's worth it, right? To some degree, that they're making a calculation. Um, and that's not a very hopeful position for a person to be in. Um, you, we can criticize all we want, whatever incentives are keeping them home rather than applying for jobs. Um, but there's something deeper than that. These are, this is, these are people saying, you know, I, I don't think 
there's anything for me to do. I don't really see things getting any better. Um, and so they're just going to kind of sit there and let the government do what it does for them uh, to continue to enable that. Um, that is a crisis of faith, um, among other things. Among uh, serious economic dysfunction, uh, there is a, a genuine spiritual problem. As a rabbi friend of mine often points out to me that having, having children is an act of uh, hope in the future. And if people aren't hopeful about the future, then they're less likely to have kids. Um, and yes, that is, I have I think it, four kids myself, and I will say that you, never do you get to a point when you say, "Okay, if we have a child, it's all going to work out perfectly." Like, you know, maybe with the first one, you might be that naive, um, but uh, you know, you you do it, and you have to have some hope, some faith, um, in order to do it at all. I also would point out that Japanification is primarily a problem for those of us who do love our kids. Yeah. And for those of us who do love their grandkids. It is a multi-generational challenge. Um, you made the comment earlier, Eric, I knew what you meant by it, but you had said we can hope David's right about inflation coming down. But I do believe people misinterpret what I'm saying if they believe I'm saying it optimistically or positively. The reason I believe we face more deflationary pressures than inflationary is not optimistic. It's that I'm just simply predicting a hurricane instead of an earthquake. There's two natural disasters that are a byproduct of instability geologically, and I'm predicting one more than the other as the predominant Japanifying force over the next 30 years, but I think it's still a rather negative outlook. The, um, the difference is that we, we can very much overcome it with um, a, a spiritual awakening and a commitment to human activity in its best form that is really quite capable of the output necessary. You talked about the 80s inflation, and over time, as money supply came down, inflation began to come down with it. And at that time, the inflation was so uh, predominantly monetary that uh, the high-level money supply came down as Volcker was cutting rates. But of course, there was another major thing going on at the time, and it was this devout attention to the supply side of the economy. And we know about it through marginal tax rates being cut from 70% to 28%. But it was also heavily deregulatory. There was a significant opening up of capital markets. And, and, and so that kind of uh, what we call supply-side revolution, where the blending of what became very popular on the op-ed page at the Wall Street Journal, along with Jack Kemp in the halls of Congress, and then the Reagan economic team with Laffer and 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 Cudlow and these guys, you you had a synthesis between the Fed and the supply side that really put downward pressure on inflation, but it was not deflationary. It was incredibly pro-growth. I am skeptical that right now we have the appetite for what it will take, let alone the ability to medically incur the hangover that we'd have to get through. And so I don't know what it will take to get on the other side of it, but I do believe that there's hope. It's just that, um, back to my original point before my fourth tangent, the factor of having kids gives a long-term perspective that Keynes didn't have. The in the long run, we're all dead 
uh, philosophy does not account for multi-generational covenantal realities. And I believe that Japanification is primarily an affront to those of us who care about the generations to come. David, while we've got you and in the time we have left, I want to ask you something that I saw uh, a friend of mine ask on social media wanting to make sense of. I thought you may be a good person to offer an answer to this. And and of course, Dan and Dylan, feel free to weigh in on it as well. Uh, From a story, uh, I just pulled this one from CBS News. Here's your headline. Oil companies reap unprecedented profits as Americans struggle to pay for food and gas. Just delightful framing on that headline. The original piece that I saw someone, uh, a, a kind of sort of friend on online share, uh, it was interesting. I actually clicked through and I read the article. And while he was making a point about profits, nowhere in there did it say anything about profits. It was entirely about revenues, which is one of those frustrating, uh, really frustrating things. But so... David, what can you and your expertise in in, uh, in financial markets tell us about this data we're getting about oil companies, their profits, and the price of uh, not only oil but gas, which always to me from, again, coming from my marketing and political background, gas prices are just one of the most vexatious things because there's so many factors involved in it. And, you know, you want to point to, you know, the price of oil going up and down, but you don't see an impact at the pump. And in a way, the explanation of that is simple. You don't fill up with crude oil. Um, there's a whole lot that goes into getting gasoline to it. So, David, I, I would love anything you could offer us on this story. Well, just a few quick factoids. Um, the profit margins at the downstream aspect, which is exactly what where this comes down to, it's out of refinery margins, is about 1.5%. It's as thin as it gets. And to the extent that there will be, um, obviously, the higher revenues that the article disingenuously refers to, but there will be higher profits in 22, and they will not be equal to the losses of 20. See, I want to know where the headline was in 2020 that said oil companies suffer record losses as consumers keep getting free money from the government. Was that a big headline? No, we were Not getting that I remember. We were getting cheap gas too. 2020 was a debacle and 2022 has been a windfall because humans act And the forces of supply and demand and the realities of economic logic have created such. It is a highly cyclical business. Um, It is vexing what takes place. But the notion that it's corporate greed requires us to suspend belief in laws of economics. If indeed a downstream player like Exxon was gouging, then another downstream player like Chevron would gouge less and capture market share. Um, we believe competition works in governing prices in every single aspect besides healthcare, where they have decided it doesn't. It most certainly does in the consumption of energy. Um, all money is basically made downstream in the snacks and food and beverage they sell inside the gas stations. This is a preposterous conversation rooted in class envy and if one wants to actually look at the PL of big oil in America, I will do it with them, but they will start in 2020, not 2022. I think um, one of the one of the frustrations in these sorts of headlines is that it also 
fails to take account of the fact that this revenue is generated because people are using these services, that people are deriving value, that the money is not simply taken and lit on fire, that people actually receive gasoline. They actually receive, you know, home heating oil. They actually receive tremendous benefit that they can access a highly intensive capital good that, you know, the amount of money in crude oil extraction, in refineries, in processing is a tremendous outlay of capital that I can get access to a gallon at a time at a even at its highest prices when you consider that sort of capital investment it's just remarkable that literally you know i can go you know and i can get it from places that are literally across the street from each other that post their prices on a big board that tell me exactly what i'm going to pay when i'm going to roll in there um and i don't think you know revenues are reflective of that reality, of that reality that people are choosing to use this product and they're doing that on the basis of that product making their life better. So uh, as far as the headline, the the framing, uh, and something I'm sure you can speak a little more to, Eric, but uh, – Reminds me a little bit. I had a conversation last week with a colleague here about um, the Chronicles of Narnia movies based on the children's books. Um, and for a variety of reasons, they made three of those movies and they didn't make any more, even though there's seven books. Uh, the third one, um, one of the things they did was they basically invented a villain for the story because Hollywood could not handle a sort of, you know, Odysseus, you know, Odyssey kind of traveling story that didn't have that kind of antagonism or opposition. There's still character development. There's still a real story that happens. There's conflict, all those sorts of things. I think we have a huge problem in our media that the only narrative they know how to craft is one with a bad guy. It doesn't mean there aren't people that have made bad policy decisions, as we've just outlined. Um, and you could call them bad guys, although a lot of times perhaps they're just incompetent. Um, but I just don't think it's helpful. This idea of, oh, gas prices are high, therefore the oil companies are the bad guys. Oil companies may be good or bad based on other reasons. I don't want to even get into that, right? Um, but the economics is real. Human behavior affects the use of scarce goods. Um, that, that just happens. There are relationships that people have been studying at least since Adam Smith, you know, 250 years now. Um, and there's a lot that left and right economists agree on uh, that are just fundamental to how people behave. And perhaps we need to be thinking, or our media needs to be thinking of what is a different, instead of how are we going to craft the narrative, how are we going to tell the same story again, just like a Hollywood superhero film, or, you know, or whatever. Um, maybe they need to think a bit more outside of the box. Maybe there's something deeper. There's a different kind of story that could be told here that might sell papers just as well. There's not just the inclination to have to establish the black hat the villain in all of this. It is uh, in 
in the media the desire or the need to reduce everything down to a binary conflict. Now, I remember this vividly from when I was in Chicago. Um, this would have been, I think, 2013. 13 was when the first big uh, Chicago public schools, Chicago Teachers Union went out on strike. And if one were to read and watch the coverage of that story, everything was boiled down into a binary conflict between Karen Lewis, the president of the Chicago Teachers Union, and Rahm Emanuel the mayor of Chicago, casting, you know, Rahm Emanuel essentially as some kind of reformist trying to make changes to the Chicago public school system, and Karen Lewis as the defender of public education and teachers. And as an advocate for real school choice, which is something that Illinois um, only barely has today, my position is not represented by either one of these things, but there was no room in that debate for a third or fourth position um, or even, you know, the to, to bring my more ardent libertarian friends in it. People who would argue, ask the question, why do we even have public schools in the first place? <laughs> uh, these views aren't represented and everything is reduced to this binary. And I think it does feed into that. That binary becomes hero versus villain. Somebody has to be the good guy. Somebody has to be the bad guy. And you know what? To some extent, let people make those decisions for themselves. But we probably don't have nearly enough time left to get into all of the problems that exist in our media. But we did do uh, talk a good amount about fundamental misunderstandings of economics and the economic way of thinking. And if people want to understand that better or know somebody who shares the kind of things on, on social media that I was talking about earlier and want that to be better, what they should do is they should get a copy of David Bonson's book. There's no free lunch, 250 Economic Truths, uh, which is just a um, – I, you know, I, I have a copy and have had a chance to read it and I, you know, love the way that it marries these short readings and explanations from some of the great economists and thinkers, um, including uh, some from our own uh, co-founder, Father Sirico. So I encourage people to go out and pick up that book to help understand better the way that uh, economic thinking and the way the economy works. Well, Eric, thank you for that. But, you know, you don't get Father Sirico until you get into chapter one. You actually get Dylan in the introduction <laughs> when I use his foundations of free and virtuous society to define an economy. So uh, before the there's no free lunch, there was already a great economics book by one of our <laughs> other uh, participants today. So thank you, Dylan. I, yes, I did write a book as well. <laughs> Feel free we, to buy it put, if you're interested. We will put uh, the... the the glory of economics is feel free to buy it. We'll put a link in there where people can buy it. They can, as Milton Friedman said, I think people tend to value what they get at the price they With pay inflation, for. With inflation, it's on discount, right? Yeah, it's, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Let's call it a wrap there for today. I want to thank you for listening to Act and Unwind. And if you're listening to this podcast on our website, please look in the show notes for a link where you can subscribe directly to Act and Unwind or just search Act and Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews only, so that more people can find this program. Thanks to Dan. Thanks to Dylan. Thanks to David Bonson for joining us. For the Acton Institute, this is Eric Cohn. We'll see you next week.
um, around the nation. And is this a sort of counterproductive political strategy um, for Republicans to focus on these issues of language? Anyone? <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I agree with that. 